Welcome to Precision Medicine Forum Podcast, chatting with patients, healthcare, industry and research professionals about creating personalized medicines for each and every one of us. Together, we head to the Holy Grail, mainstream precision medicine. Here's your host, Scott Buckler. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Precision Medicine Forum special edition podcast where we're celebrating the 10-year anniversary of genomics and genomics in England. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by the chair of Genomics England's participant panel, Gillian Hastings-Ward. And Gillian's going to talk to us a little bit about today about what the participant panel is about. We've had a reflection from Chris already talking about the role of that and the importance of that. Uh, so Julian's going to talk a little bit more about that today and understand a little bit more about her role and what that is and the participant panel does. So welcome along, Julian. Thank you very much. Tell us a bit more about your role as the chair of the participant panel and what that involves. Well, the participant panel itself has been in existence since 2016 and most of us on the panel were recruited because we are part of the 100,000 Genomes Project. So we either have rare conditions ourselves or we look after people who have rare conditions or we have been or are cancer patients. And the lived experience there of sitting in those clinics and deciding to give consent to share our whole genomes with the team at Genomics England is something which has been a formative experience in our journey through genomics and is something which informs what we do when we advise them about what matters to us and people like us from the wider community. With the participant panel, um, Chris touched on um, a charter that's in place for any sort of decisions moving forward in regarding research, etc. Uh, you and, and the panel play a, an active role in that. Tell us a little bit more about how that actually plays out and, and how that, that role is done. What do you have to do and, and how does that work out in a typical um, program or initiative? Well, the, the participant panel's original remit was to oversee what Genomics England did with our data that it had collected because we had chosen to share it. And that has manifested itself in several different ways. So panel representatives sit on the Access Review Committee, which is the independent advisory body to Genomics England, um, taking decisions about who should get access to the data which has been collected there in the National Genomic Research Library. Um, And so we have several panel representatives sitting on the, the ARC. We also send our panel members along to the Ethics Advisory Committee, where we have an equally strong representation there. So when Genomics England is thinking about ethical issues arising from the use of data or the potential use of that data, they are right there in the room and they are contributing fully to discussions about what that should be looking like. We also send several representatives to the board called the GSIP board, which is the Genomics England Clinical Interpretation Partnerships Board, which looks from a scientific perspective about how we can engage with researchers and how we can encourage researchers to be asking questions of this data that are the sort of questions that we as participants would like to be asking. And so we're, we're feeding right there into the, these key decision-making and advisory bodies within Genomics England. But the participant panel itself as well, uh, we meet quarterly and we have the ability to call anybody from Genomics England or people who are also working within the NHS on genomic data as part of the work that the 100,000 Genomes Project began to come and tell us what they're up to. Yeah. So we quite regularly hear from Chris Wigley and his colleagues in the senior leadership team, and we're able to ask them directly um, what they're doing to help participants find more answers out of this data and what they're going to do next 
to advance the science of genomics as we move forward. Tell us how you how you became to be part of the participant panel. What 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 you touched on very beginning the, the role where it's been affected uh, personally or within the family or, or or yourself. Tell us how you became involved with it. Well, I have two children, and my second child um, seemed to be quite healthy when he was born, but when he was three months old we realised that actually he wasn't able to see anything. And that was a very frightening time. So we first engaged with ophthalmology at that point and and they did some tests on him and they couldn't find out the reason why his eyes didn't seem to be functioning properly either. Um, And by the time he was a year old, the paediatricians that we were speaking to by then were really concerned about having a developmental delay as well. So it was beyond what you would expect of a child who's got a visual disorder. His development was lagging behind that even further. So they did all the tests that were available in the NHS at the time. That was 2014, 2015 sort of time. Um, and all of them drew a blank. And it was quite obvious that there was quite a big problem there. But the, the, the tests that were available at the time weren't picking it up. So we were offered the chance to have genetic testing and mm-hmm. particularly to join the 100,000 Genomes Programme for whole genome sequencing. So my husband and I signed up with our son, um, gave our blood um, to be sampled to have the the whole genome sequenced um, at St George's Hospital in London, where we lived at the time. And they sent that off along with our permission to share the health records that are associated with that data to Genomics England back in 2015. And it was a couple of years later that we actually got a result from the project. But in the meantime, because we ticked a box that said, yes, we do want to be kept up to speed with what's happening. In the meantime, I'd heard that they were looking for people to volunteer to sit on this participant panel that was established in 2016. And um, I thought it would be a, a good use of my time and my skills because in in, before I had my children, I was in the, in the civil service in in the UK government civil service and prior to that I was a chartered town planner so lots of different skill sets there which I thought might come in handy when we're talking as a participant panel about how you influence how decisions are made and how you see where you sit within the wider ecosystem. When I was talking to Chris we talked about the emotive uh, aspects of genomics and genomic sequencing especially as yourself as a parent I'm a father of two girls myself and I told Chris at the time, I don't think he was aware, although we've met on a number of occasions, my nephew, Benjamin's got a rare disease, puts Jager's syndrome, uh, which presents spots across his thing, and he has to, it has to be regularly uh, monitored. Now, that's been as a uh, impact of what my brother has. So as a hereditary condition, they're both scanned quite regularly and polyps are removed from the stomach and, and everything, and he's got a, a high risk of cancer as he, as he gets older. My brother and my sister-in-law and us as a family would immediately do anything we could do to improve the outcomes for Ben as he gets older because of the the fact it's your son or your daughter, what it is. From a participant panel perspective, outside of yourself, are the members people who are following a similar journey or is it also people who are looking to bring, as you touched about town planning, a different skill set to the panel? Um, and how difficult is it to park emotions to to decisions as when you're part of the panel? Yeah, that, that's a really interesting question. And it's something which I think has occurred to probably all of us on the participant panel at some point over the past few years that there's a continual tension between, you know, you're, you're there because of your lived experience as a parent or as a patient, but your lived 
experience brings richness and gravitas to the contributions that you can make to the participant panel but also it's something that you can't switch off because it's your lived experience you know you may go to a panel meeting and then you go home and you have to you know process the medications that you might be on or another clinic appointment which may be painful or invasive or look after a child who completely needs you in order to survive and that is a it is a very tiring grueling scenario to be in that that the thing that makes you helpful in the panel context is also something which comes with challenges in the rest of your life and I, I think um you know we have to be mindful of the fact that everybody on the participant panel is there because they have volunteered to share their time and their talents no matter what their background is we're all coming together because we want to see the best use of this data in the hope that it will bring more diagnoses to people with no diagnosis, that it will help build communities among people who've already got a diagnosis, and that it will expand and improve our treatment of cancers exponentially. And I think the cancer patients on the participant panel are, are particularly effective in sharing what matters to them, but also I'm keenly aware that several of them have, you know, a lot of treatment to get slotted into their, their lives as well as the work that they do with us and their day-to-day -day lives in addition. And, and that's an enormous commitment and we're very grateful for them to be able to come and help us in that way. Yeah, it's very selfless, isn't it, really? It's very selfless in a lot of ways. It is, but you can't assume to know what somebody else's experience is without having walked in their shoes. And, you know, with the best will in the world, you can say, oh, this is about patients. This is, you know, we're keeping patients at the centre of this. But unless you actually ask the patients what they think, that's, you know, that's goodwill at best, rather than actually bringing in that authenticity and, and really getting to the heart of it. So... I think that's one of the really real strengths of the participant panel is that everybody who's on it has a personal story involved and a personal reason why they want genomics to work, basically. You know, we're all there because we want to use this data in the best possible way. But we do also bring the knowledge and the experience of the communities that we're rooted in more widely, relating to the different conditions that we're all challenged by on a weekly basis. And, and so it is a very involved process. And I think you do have to remember that volunteers will always bring a different perspective from people who are being paid to be there. This special edition of the Precision Medicine Forum podcast is proudly brought to you by Devisa, the pioneering leader in diagnostic solutions for genetic testing. Where people don't work within genomics and those that sit on the outside and I'm talking from the commentators the media and people that may look at it from a different perspective there's an ethical debate that unfolds around the use of data and the use of data in children and as you get older you touched on there 2014 we're now in 2022 and how things develop I'm an uncle to a to a to my nephew of who's, who's got this so I'm slightly emotionally attached to that be given my nephew but as a parent yourself the ethical aspect of it because you can see that very transparent and clearly from what you're doing the partisan panel and what chris shares and what what genomics england do this debate around the ethnicity and the ethical aspects of of uh, genomics is one that's rumbled on for quite a while but obviously we're seeing the success of genomics unfold year by year and some of the new initiatives that um, Genomics England are working on. Uh, from a participant panel 
perspective, the the ethic debate is it something that raises its head regularly when you're having meetings? Is it something that comes into discussion quite a lot when you look at different research programs that are presented? Yeah, I think there's a lot to unpack there, really. Obviously, people who choose to share their data with an organisation like Genomics England believe it to be a trustworthy organisation and believe that it's going to make decisions about how that data is used, which will be in their best interests. I think we become the, the debate becomes more difficult when you're talking about prospective future uses of data and how that may be collected and whose data it would be because at the moment the the major big you know the, the major genomics programs that we're looking at in this country they're all done on a, an explicit consent basis so the our future health program the 100,000 genomes program which has stopped recruiting but we're still helping people who are in it people who are coming in through the genomic medicine service and looking towards the, the future into the newborns programme, which is currently under development at Genomics England. I think that everybody who's going to be on of all of those is going to be explicitly giving their consent to be part of it. But the sort of people who want to give consent to do that are people who already trust the organisations who are helping to control that or who are controlling that data and, and helping to drive it forward. And I think, you know, that the science seems to be fairly clear that until you have a range of genomes from a, a range of different kinds of people, genomics is not going to be able to help the full range of people out there in the world. And that's something which I think everyone recognises as a big mm -hmm. challenge. And that's something that I think the diverse data team at Genomics England are working hard on at the moment about how to make sure that the people whose genomes are coming into the data sets to be worked on and to be better understood reflect more broadly the, the, the wider ethnicity that we have across society. From 2014 to 2022, um, nearly eight years, well, going into 2023, coming up to nine years now from, from your personal perspective, you've, you've overseen or you've been involved with a lot, the 100,000 genomes, as you said, there's different initiatives developing quite regularly now. What have you, in your time, how have you seen it transform and, and what have been some of the highlights in terms of being part of the participant panel and chair of that that you've seen unfold personally? I was a relatively um, early arrival into the main programme. So, first of all, just recruiting 100,000 uh, people mm -hmm. or uh, recruiting 100,000 genomes, the cancer patients gave a genome sample from their tumours and from somewhere else in their body. So we don't have quite 100,000 people overall, but um, the, the numbers of people that were able to get um, recruited into the programme, those seemed like very large numbers at the very beginning. And then to be able to think you could help to represent um, the interests of those communities within conversations at Genomics England was very exciting and it's a responsibility that I think doesn't sit lightly with any of us. So um, the, the, the size and the scale of the programme have been very exciting and then as we've started to get answers out of it that's been fantastic. You know there's I think now we've got to a stage where the rare disease families who joined the project, about one in four of them have got an answer that they wouldn't have got through mainstream healthcare at the time. And so that's a lot, you know, that's thousands of families who now have a diagnosis that wouldn't previously have been available. And although for many of us, it's a case of, it's a string of letters and numbers that you write on a page, it's also a label that you can put into Google and Facebook and 
places to find other people and it's a route to connecting with others and that connection is something which is the root of everything that follows so you have to find other people or have to be able to find other people who've got the rarest conditions that match up with yours and then you have to be able to galvanise and hopefully in the next decade what I'd really like to see is groups of people who share these same rare conditions being able to find and work with researchers who've got the skills to help move forward in terms of developing treatments to alleviate symptoms for example that some people are finding really hard to live with at the moment. So the, yeah the scale of the 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 programme and the effectiveness so far in being able to find answers for, for rare disease patients and also in suggesting cancer trials and other options for the cancer patients on the programme. That's been really exciting too. As we're moving forward, I think just the idea that we can have these sorts of formalised partnerships between clinicians, researchers and the people whose data they're looking at is something which we've been working really hard to establish within Genomics England. And I think that model is now one which is fairly well recognised as something that people should be trying to do. So. Um, we on the panel have written a paper recently and that turned up in uh, it was published in the European Journal of Human Genetics um, about the role of research participants and we've described ourselves as critical friends and agents for change so there's there's two different main roles that we see on the panel that we have one is in, in scenarios where we're invited into conversations to you know contribute being invited to a party as it were and then the other role is the gate crashing role, which I think we're finding has been, um, in fact, potentially more rewarding as we've moved forward, that we are now in a position where the panel feels secure enough in its relationship with the leadership at Genomics England that we are able to bring them further challenges and say, well, you know, you, you're, the scope of what you were thinking of doing was X. What about shifting it slightly to better meet the needs of the people whose data that you're looking at? So, for example, when it came to returning results to the people who'd asked for additional findings through the 100,000 Genomes Programme, um, everyone who signed up for the project was offered the chance to find out whether they also had a predisposition to uh, a certain forms of cancer or chronic conditions which have clear genetic markers. And many cases... Uh, well, the majority of people who signed up for the 100k programme said that they would like to hear about this. But the time that it has taken in order to get to a point where Genomics England were ready to return that information to the participant population had it, it, it been quite a lot longer than anyone had anticipated because initially the, the project um, it took longer than they imagined it would do to process all of the samples that had come in to find a first result for everybody. And then we have had COVID, which has obviously disrupted a lot of um, things in the healthcare maze that we would never have imagined. Mm. And so um, more recently, we got to the stage where um, Genomics England were ready to write out with the results of the additional findings research to the population. And we were very keen to push back at that point and say, well, hang on, you have to remind everybody that they asked for these in the first place, because if an envelope lands on your letter, on your mat that you weren't expecting from, you know, hello, remember us five years ago, you said you'd be interested in hearing whether you had a predisposition to certain cancers or not. Um, here's your answer. You know, that could be quite a shock for people. So we said, well, yeah. come on, let's, let's try and write out to everybody and make sure that you remind them firstly that you're still looking at their data and secondly that they initially had made a choice about whether they wanted to hear about this news for themselves or not 
and give them the opportunity to check it and change it if necessary before you send back the letters. So we were delighted that Genomics England took our, our suggestion on board there and worked really hard with the NHS partners to be able to write out to the entire population of the participants in the 100k programme to remind them that this was happening and to give them a chance to check their choice and to change it if necessary. And you know that was tens of thousands of letters went out and only a very small proportion of the population changed. But a lot of people, I think something like 12,000 people, did want to at least check in again and check that the choice that they had made at the time was what they still wanted. So that was a really worthwhile experience because I think any news from a project like this is going to land right in your heart when it arrives because the reason you're in this project is something that's fundamental to your existence in many people's cases. So you need to handle these things really carefully and cautiously. And I think that was one example where we did just that. Especially after the pandemic, uh, the, the, the rate of fear for people of common diseases and health has raised and the awareness has raised. So that time space has been big and people are more apprehensive now. Um, you touched on something there that that, that sort of brings me to, the, to sort of one of my final questions really to you was, you touched on NHS England there and, and, and the role they played in that. It, it, when I've looked at Genomics England speaking to Chris and when we've, we've, we've looked at Genomics England as part of the support they're given to the Precision Medicine Forum over the last few years, two things really stand out for me. One of them is sustainable leadership that's been there from the, from the get-go. Um, there's many organisations, and I think we're culpable in this country, certainly from a government point of view, for swapping and changing on short term um, the way that we run things and we end up with broken systems and reinventing the wheel every so often compared to maybe some of our Nordic neighbours who are, are more sustainable in length to, to what they put in practice. I see Genomics England has been a bit of a, a rare gem in that case that it's actually maintained its goals and actions and supported very well along the way but one of the key aspects it does very well is collaboration um, with NHS England but also with industry um, and that has led to some of these findings and this success um, for yourself you touched on NHS England there as a participant panel how has it opened up your eyes to the role of of the likes of NHS England but also to industry uh, and and the benefits that they play in this has that surprised you in any way or given the length of time you've been with the participant panel have you come to expect great things from them because there's still a lot of skepticism outside when they look at any industry based company whether they're a large or a small working within the healthcare field has been privatization or, or being concerned how have you seen that play out um from a genomics point of view and, and and what's your kind of feelings around that collaborative approach? That's a huge question. Yes, it um, is quite a big question. Sorry about that. No, that's fine. Um, I'll break it back down then. So the, the collaboration with the NHS, that's, I think you're right, that Genomics England have worked really hard with their NHS partners to help create a genomic medicine service, which is actually going to help a lot of people out there over a relatively short time frame now to get answers that they didn't have before. I think the typical patient experience is that you go along to a hospital somewhere and you meet a clinician and they might take a blood sample and send it away and then you go off and live your own life for you know months or potentially years before you get called back to clinic and they tell you the answer. 
And it's very easy not to see any more than just those touch points when you're out there as a member of the public or as, as a patient who doesn't get to see behind the lab doors as we do. So in many cases, a lot of this is hidden from the wider patient population, not deliberately necessarily, but just because they never get the opportunity to hear about it. But when these samples come through the pipeline and end up in the Genomics England database and then are, are looked at by the industry partners with all the different lenses and all the different tools that they're developing now, I'm conscious that we on the participant panel are quite in a privileged position there to be able to hear directly from some of these organisations about what they're doing. And some of it really does seem like magic. You know, I mean, we as non-scientists, it blows our socks off. And I think a lot of the stuff that we're hearing about coming forward at the moment, you know, proteomics and various other um, omics. I don't even know what the full title is. Trust are. me, I'm, I'm still trying to get my head around a lot of it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the different ways that you can look at humans and the different tools you can use to look at tiny little different bits of these humans, they are phenomenal. And I think there's a definite job to do there among industry and researchers to get better at explaining to the public what it is that they're actually able to do here and and what they're not able to do as well because i think sometimes people are a bit concerned that actually now we've got so many tools that you could find out everything about somebody and then they worry about what happens to that information as a consequence whereas we've found out in the course of the project the 100,000 genomes project that actually even if you sequence a whole genome, that just means writing down all the different letters of genetic code in order. It doesn't necessarily mean that we yet understand what half of it does. And I think over the next 10 years or so, more and more tools and better and better understanding are going to be developed in order for us to unpack even more of that. But I think there's still a job to do in educating the public that a whole genome being sequenced doesn't mean that they can immediately read all of it, as it were. And these analogies that we've had in the past about, oh, it's the encyclopedia of you. Well, it sort of is, but some of it's actually written in a language that nobody's got the dictionary for yet. So there's still a lot of translating to do there. But in terms of the work that Genomics England are doing with their industry partners, I think there's some really exciting things happening there. And certainly um, it's a it's been a very interesting to hear about how they're developing different tools to look at different parts of this and then collaborate with um, others who are designing different tools to sort of tell two sides of the same story in order to try and get to a point where they understand an element of humans well enough to then be able to develop a treatment to alleviate the symptoms of whatever it is that's causing their trouble. Julian, we're going to leave it there, but we would like to say a big thank you for your time. Thank you. I was really looking forward to speaking to you because I think understanding it from a participant perspective and, and those that are involved at the call phase, for want of a better term, um, but are also emotionally involved is very important for people to understand. Uh, we can hear a lot from a clinical perspective. We get a lot of clinical-based uh, podcasts and clinical-based presentations, but it's personally from my perspective, knowing a little bit about it from my family and, and yourselves being involved in it, I think it's great to have that perspective and it's been a pleasure to speak to you today. So thank you very much for your time. Thanks for the invitation to join you. That was Precision Medicine Forum podcast. Visit precisionmedicineforum.com to get all the show resources and find out about our upcoming episodes and events. And please subscribe or follow on your podcast app so you never miss an episode.